Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. As this morning we continue our study in the Sermon on the Mount and come to what's called the fourth beatitude, the fourth blessing. It's a text that gives some of us the heebie-jeebies. It's one of those texts that sometimes makes us uncomfortably nervous. Why? Jesus here speaks of righteousness, and that makes us nervous. Some immediately feel guilty for their moral failures and unrighteousness. Others uh, bow in shame when they think about it for not measuring up to other people's expectations of themselves and not their own, let alone God's, for what we were made to be. Some imagine with fear that the preacher is going to lay on them a load of bricks their backs have already tried to carry and failed. (laughs) And, uh, well, you're just too worn out by trying. You don't want to hear it again. Maybe as you come to this beatitude about righteousness, you think about that. It it makes you sad or it makes you angry. Or maybe you just want to give up. Jesus wants you to think about righteousness because he wants you to be blessed. He speaks these blessings because he wants us to know what it is to be God blessed. And blessing and righteousness are tied together. How so? Well, let's consider it. Let me invite you to hear God's word from Matthew chapter 5. We'll read verses 3 through six, the first four Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Amen. This is God's word. Let's look to him together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your son who first spoke these words to your people, to disciples. We pray that by the work of your spirit, you would give us ears to hear it again. And grant that as your disciples, we would know your blessing. So you be our teacher for your glory and our good. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, I want us to beware, uh, by way of introduction, to beware of religions that make you feel more righteous than other people. That's not the goal here. There's the religion of politics. Join our cause. We're on the right side of history, and it is us against them, right? Be outraged at their wrongs. But you don't have to really think about your own. 
There's the religion of politics. There's the religion of the Pharisees, religious leaders. We're all doing really well at being good. We're committed. Come join the team. Get on the train, right? There's the religion of personal improvement. Jesus is better than the Pharisees, and you can be too. Just follow his example. That's why he came to show you a better way, to show you the good life. So let me exhort you to imitate him so you can have the life with God's, you know, good housekeeping stamp of approval, right? Personal improvement. These are religions of works and they are cruel taskmasters. With God as the villain, God as the exhausting overlord, God like Pharaoh over the the, uh, Israelites in Egypt demanding more bricks without supplying the straw, right? Thinking of God as... Demanding greater degrees of effort and success and being good or righteous or else he won't be good to you. That's the opposite of the gospel, but it's a common point of view. People think Christianity amounts to a bunch of rules and you get slapped down when you don't keep them and that only a few people really measure up. And so only a few people really enjoy God's blessing because only a few people are righteous like this. It's the Santa Claus view of God, really. I think you better watch out. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake or else you'll get coal in your stocking. God is the ultimate Saint Nick, right? Thumbs up to the good people. Scowls and curses for all you miscreants. No grace, no forgiveness, no favor to the wicked, no rest for the weary, no joy when Santa Claus comes to town unless you have performed well for him. It's a tragic view of Christianity. It is deeply and profoundly flawed. The God of the Beatitudes is an oasis for the weary. He is food for the famished. He is a cool drink of water for the thirsty. These Beatitudes then aren't some kind of new law. They're gospel. They're good news. They don't command you to do something to acquire God's favor. They announce the kind of person who God has already blessed. And that kind of person we've already said, beginning with the first one, is poor in spirit. In, what, in other words, they, they begin with, I don't measure up. I don't have the goods before God. They know that they are morally and spiritually corrupt and bankrupt before God. They deserve nothing from Him. Therefore, He has everything to graciously give them. And the poor in spirit, well, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Not by their merits. They deny their merits. They run from them. They repent of them. They put all their hopes in Jesus because their only hope is a cry for mercy. And so here, when you get to this one, it's not a contradiction of the first. It's it's not about one who who has achieved being righteous. It is people who are very aware that they haven't. And so they, they hunger, they thirst for that which they don't have. It's not innate to them. Notice 
their desire. Notice what's desired. Notice how God satisfies their desire. And notice the result. Let me have you think about those four things. Notice their desire. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, it says. They have a need as essential as food and drink. Nobody teaches a baby to be hungry and thirsty. Every day my kids just woke up and said, Mama, nurse. We had one or more that said, Mama, nursty. Right? Don't have to teach them that. We're all pretty fanatical about eating. Three square meals a day. Snacks in between. Some of us more than others. If we don't eat, we waste away. And eventually we perish. And Jesus is teaching us that we have real spiritual needs like we have physical needs. And our most basic spiritual need is righteousness. If there is no hunger and thirst for it, then you are either dead, you're just simply not alive, or you are very, very sick. Which is why physicians will sometimes ask very sick people, how's your appetite? No appetite is a symptom of a dangerous condition. So let me just ask you as we begin, Jesus begins with desire. Do you have a a healthy, hearty, spiritual appetite? Now, what's on the menu? What are you supposed to hunger and thirst for? He says righteousness, right? Jesus isn't saying you've got to be righteous to be my disciple. He's talking to disciples. It's not an ultimatum. Clean up your act. Get right with God by your behavior. And then I'll be okay with you because, well, then obviously you're okay. You're not okay in his eyes, in yourself. But that's okay, because Jesus didn't come to call the righteous. He came to call sinners to repentance. It's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. It's okay to admit it. Jesus says his people then hunger and thirst. Hunger and thirst for righteousness or for what is right, for what is good. Uh, they, They hunger for it for themselves. They want to be what they ought to be. And they they hunger for themselves to be right with God. Because they are, not in themselves. And Jesus says here that they hunger and thirst for the righteousness. It's an interesting use of the definite article included here. He's not talking about just you know any kind of righteousness, but the righteousness. What's he talking about? You know, uh, later in the prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Sometimes we say, or all evil sometimes we say, but, but really it's the evil one, or the evil, it's evil personified. It's, it's that one. It's, well, I think like here, it's, it's the righteousness. What's the righteousness that we are supposed to hunger and thirst for? It begs the question, right? What's he talking about? Well, it's the righteousness that comes from God and is received as a gift. It's the righteousness only he can give you. It's not something you have, it's something you need. You don't possess it, you, you crave it. So he's not talking about self-righteousness or moral improvement. He's talking about the gift of righteousness. And they shall be satisfied, he says. They shall be satisfied. And it's not an active voice or a middle voice, it's a passive voice. Which, which, what is that? Well, 
If it was active voice, it would be, and it would be a weird thing to say, but it would be something like, turned outward, they satisfy others. They do the action of satisfying others who need. Okay? It's not that. And it's not middle voice turned in on itself. I satisfy myself. I hunger and thirst for righteousness, and I satisfied me with the food I'm hungry for. It's not that at all. It's receptive. It's passive. I'm the object of another's activity. I'm satisfied outside myself from somebody outside myself who gives to me what I cannot give myself. So there's this specific righteousness that only somebody else can give me. This is a in Greek. It's, it's a divine passive. It's assumed. Who's giving you this? Who's coming up with this? Jesus himself is granting to you this righteousness. You don't have to make yourself righteous to be right with him. He makes you righteous so that you can be right with him. Now, how does he do that? How does God give me this righteousness, satisfy me with this righteousness? I want to highlight two ways. One is by imputation and the other is uh, by implantation or impartation. Consider them both. First, uh, imputation, I realize, big word, strange. We don't use it a lot. It's not something we throw around in our own vocabulary. But it means that we are declared righteous through faith in Jesus Christ because God credits the righteousness of Jesus to us. In other words, we're talking about justification here. It refers to God's gift of a whole, perfect, complete, satisfying righteousness. All the righteousness you need to be right with God. And it's found in being united to Jesus Christ. There are various pictures of this in the scripture. Let me highlight three. There's a... There's a courtroom kind of view of it. There's a business office view of it. And there's a dressing room view of it. There's a, there's a courtroom way to understand this. Uh, when we all appear and we shall one day appear before the judgment seat of God. And we are in the court before the judge and the books are open as Revelation says. And the record of our deeds is laid out. Who can stand? He knows everything. He knows everything you've thought, all the filthy desires, let alone the stuff you've said and the mean things you've done. We're weighed in the balance. We're found wanting. We don't measure up. That's all of us. That's why Romans chapter 3 says there is no one righteous. No, not one. Have you ever served on a jury trial if you're older and eligible? I, uh, years ago, was a foreman on a jury trial for a man who was uh, indicted for uh, the possession and uh, distribution of crack cocaine cookies, which I'd never heard of, but there it is. The only witness in the case who actually saw the event was an unreliable government informant who got time off from his own prison sentence to testify. Every one of the 12 jurors thought the accused was perhaps possibly guilty. But none of us thought he was guilty beyond a reasonable doubt and playing it safe, doing what we thought the law required, we declared him not guilty. Uh, Later afterwards, the judge came back to visit with us in the room by ourselves and he said, 
I don't know why you did what you did. I don't, I don't know. Don't tell me. <laughs> but, uh, but I just thought you should know that this man is also on trial for murder. <laughs> we got the distinct impression that the judge certainly thought he was guilty and we had made a serious mistake. Now, um, of course, our system of law is designed in such a way that we would rather let the guilty go free than imprison the innocent. And uh, we ought to be glad we live in a society where that's the case, where uh, the innocent uh, are preferred to be free over the guilty going to prison. We ought to be glad we live in a society that still believes that, if indeed it still does, sometimes on social media. It gets hard to see that this is something we value. But I just bring that up because we should all remember that in God's courtroom, no evidence gets overlooked. There are no sketchy uh, witnesses. The prosecutor has all the facts and the judge makes a perfectly just decision. And that is, as he looks at you, Guilty, guilty, guilty. How can we escape? We need the judge to declare us not guilty. And God does in justification. God declares the sinner to be righteous for all who shelter themselves in Jesus, for all who put their faith in Jesus. There is, therefore, now, no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Christ was condemned for us upon the cross. And so we are released from the guilt of our sins and the punishment due to us for them. And we have a right standing before God and before his law. God justifies, the Bible says, the ungodly. He doesn't look around finding the godly to justify. There are none. He justifies the ungodly. Now, why can he do that? He could do that because Jesus is righteous. And he is the only righteous one. He was obedient. He did all the will of his Father in heaven from the heart. He loved God with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind. He loved his neighbor as himself. And you can't say that about you. And he did that for us on our behalf, in our place. That is such a relief. God looks at... Christ and his perfect righteousness, and he imputes that to us. And so we are to hunger and thirst for that righteousness. The second image is that of an accounting room or the marketplace, a financial market. Someone itemizes your books. You pay a professional accountant, right, to look them over. And, well, it turns out your books show that you're bankrupt. Your debts are so large, you can never pay them off. But though you are destitute in the gospel... You are not. Why? Christ is not destitute. And Christ's account is rich. And you cannot exhaust it. And so in justification, with the righteousness that Christ imputes to you, all the debt of your unrighteousness is accounted, it's an accounting term, accounted or reckoned or imputed to him. And all the obedience and satisfaction that he accomplished to the law of God and loving God and neighbor... That is accounted or reckoned to you. You stand then 
in perfect righteousness. You have a standing in grace, in God. What's yours became his, and what's his became yours. This is Paul's point in Romans chapter 4. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And David also speaks of that, quoting Psalm 32. He speaks of the one to whom God counts righteousness, apart from works, apart from our works. When he says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count his sin. He doesn't count it against you. He counts it against Jesus. That's imputation. Then the third picture is that of the dressing room. There's a great example that's found in the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 3 where the, where the high priest Joshua, not, not Joshua of the Old Testament in the days of Moses, but the high priest Joshua is standing before the angel of the Lord and he is clothed as a high priest in filthy garments. Satan is standing there accusing him. But the Lord rebukes Satan and commands, remove the filthy garments from him. And, and to Joshua, he says, behold, I have taken your iniquity, iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And he said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they, they clothed him, the angels clothed him with clean garments, taking away the filthy, putting on the fresh, like the high priest, like with us. Isaiah chapter 64 says, we have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. And this is very graphic language. He's speaking of a polluted garment. He's speaking of a woman's used soiled menstrual cloth. And, and, and here's the thing that we are always doing in our flesh. We are holding that up to God and saying, would you look at my righteousness? And God is always looking at that and saying, that is a filthy, dirty, polluted rag. And we think he should be impressed with us because of our own self-righteousness. And God is very unimpressed, but he is also extremely gracious. And he offers to remove the filthy garments And clothe you with the perfect garment of Christ's own robe of righteousness. That's justification. It is a gift we receive. This was promised to us in the Old Testament when the prophets spoke of one who was to come. In Jeremiah 23, for instance, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. And Paul tells you this is fulfilled in Jesus when in 1 Corinthians he tells you about Jesus. Because of God, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us righteousness. Wisdom from God and righteousness and holiness. So let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So other religions, as others have said it, other religions are about being saved by you giving to God righteousness. And Christianity is about you receiving from God righteousness. God made him who knew no sin 
to be sin for us so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. But you've got to see that apart from him, you don't have it. You need it. You need an appetite for it. You've got to have it. Because your own is worthless and corrupt and tainted. So Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, this is the big thing he learned. To not put confidence in, in the flesh. He said, I no longer put confidence in my heritage or my birthright or my performance as a Jew or my, my training as a teacher of the law or my zeal for God and all those things. I, I said, make me right with God. And he says, I pile them up like dung. And I run away from them, that I may be found in Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own, but that which is through faith. You and I have got to see, as George Whitfield put it, that, quote, so Whitfield's words, God may damn you for the best prayer you ever put up. And that's because, as Whitfield put it, I cannot pray without sin. I cannot preach without sin. I can do anything without sin. As one expresses it, my repentance needs to be repented of. And my very tears of repentance need to be washed in the precious blood of my dear Redeemer. Not the labors of my hands could fulfill thy law's demands. Could my tears no... uh, Could my... uh, Could my zeal no respite? No. Could my tears forever flow? Tears of repentance, right? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. So has this come home to your heart? Have you seen you before God as you really are without Christ? I know a man intimately well who was first confronted with this, at least had ears to hear and eyes to see when he was 18 his life was spiraling out of control deeper and deeper into the sewer pit temper flaring hating others and being hated lust burning Uh, and if you'd met him today and he hadn't been rescued by Jesus, you'd probably find him in a gutter somewhere. And it wasn't until one night, uh, somewhere around midnight, he was home, and a neighbor girl arrived home to her home next door late, and he watched her out the window as she came to the gate under the lamppost and swung open that gate, and he thought to himself in the imaginations of his own mind, I know exactly what she was doing. He's probably right about what she was doing. But the thought struck him, who are you? That's just who you are. Her sins are your sins. What arrogance. And he broke. And that's when he cried out, Jesus, have mercy on me. And until then, he didn't. Because it was not his sins that kept him from Jesus. It was his self-righteousness that did. And it is your self-righteousness that will keep you from him too. May it not be. Has God's grace humbled you? Has has he made you then hungry and thirsty for a righteousness you just don't have? But it can be found in Christ. 
you can have it in Christ. A whole and perfect righteousness. That's by imputation. But there is more. There is more. Because what God has declared you to be in Jesus, God has determined to make you in reality. Whatever you want to call it, imparting righteousness, infusing righteousness, implanting righteousness, the larger point would be God has determined to change you and transform you. Not just pardon you, but to make you different and to begin to lay upon your heart because you're a new creature in Christ, because His Spirit lives in you, because you're alive to Him. To make you begin to love what he loves and hate what he hates. To begin to love righteousness and hate wickedness and want righteousness and want to turn away from wickedness. Even while we say, as we said in Blessed are the Poor in Spirit and Blessed are those who mourn for their sins. We're with Paul, a wretched man that I am. Who can rescue me from this body of death? The good I want to do, I do not do. The evil I don't want to do, that I keep on doing. Oh, rescue me. So we're all a mess. And yet, there is a real, genuine, sincere, though imperfect principle of love for what is good that is now in you. And by God's grace, it can be stirred up and strengthened just as perhaps every mature Christian does. It can ebb and weaken. But by God's grace, it can be stirred up. And by God's grace, we are on our way in a pilgrimage to heaven where he will make us perfectly that which he has declared us to be and that which he has set out to do so that what we truly are in ourselves in Christ is what he has accounted us to be in Christ. This is sanctification between justification and glorification. So let me ask you, are you on that path? Do you hunger and thirst for a righteousness that is not yours? Do you seek after and crave that Jesus would make you what you ought to be? Have you begun to love what he loves and hate what he hates? Do you want to walk with him, honor him, respect him, be like him? We are to be always longing for this as disciples. It's ongoing. The two verbs, hungering and thirsting, present tense. We keep on hungering. Blessed are those who keep on hungering. Blessed are those who keep on thirsting, for they shall be satisfied. It doesn't just describe like the beginnings of becoming a Christian. It describes what it means to go on as a Christian. Do you feel that? That feeling can grow. You can have an increasing desire by God's grace. To grow? Because you haven't arrived there yet. So what's the outcome here then? What's the outcome? Two more big questions. What's the outcome and how do you get it? What's the outcome? What's the result? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It says for they shall be satisfied. They will be filled. You'll get what you're longing for. The the souls are made perfect in righteousness in heaven. God satisfies you entirely. Then and there. And you've begun to sip from that stream now. You've begun to drink from it now. You already know something of the satisfaction. You know something of the blessing now. Just as you, you know something of the comforts of forgiveness. As you mourn your own sins. 
so you also know something of the satisfaction that he has promised here because you know something of what it is to have your sins forgiven to be in a right standing with God to have access to the throne of grace and you know what Jesus said is true in John chapter 4 verse 14 whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life and you drank and yet you keep on drinking Why? Why? Why am I supposed to keep on hungering and thirsting if he satisfies? Because when you took that first sip, you found that that one thing that could quench your thirst. That one sip that makes you want more of the same. You want more and more, not because you're unsatisfied, but because you are satisfied with Jesus. You have found him to be your all in all. What if you don't have this hunger? What if you don't have this thirst? What if it's weak in you like it is in so many, like it is in the preacher? How do you get it? Well, look, what we've been saying is you can't make yourself hungry and thirsty. You can't make yourself righteous. You can't make yourself of all the movements of the heart that you're supposed to have. You get it from God. So let the Lord know the state of your soul. Tell them you have been self-satisfied and self-righteous. Tell him you're destitute of what he requires. Tell him your soul is sick. And when you admit to the Lord that you are sick, like a great physician, he comes. Because he cares about righteousness and he cares about you. When he opens your eyes and you're You have poverty of spirit. You begin to mourn your own sins. And as you grieve your own sins, you long to be free of those sins. And so you long for what? Righteousness. Do you ache for it? God will see that you get it. How blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. Let's pray. Father in heaven, make us to feel our emptiness. And then fill us to overflowing. And forgive the weakness of our interest. And help us to rest in the perfection of our Savior. In his name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Mm-hmm.